0: Welcome to Music History Monday for July eleventh, twenty twenty-two. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is "The Death of George Gershwin." If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at Patreon.com/slash Robert Greenberg Music, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate review and bloviate four to six times a week we mark the death on july 11 1937 85 years ago today of the american composer and pianist george gershwin at cedars sinai medical center in los angeles born in brooklyn new york on september 26 1898 gershwin was only 38 years old at the time of his death This is going to be an unavoidably depressing post. Dealing with anyone's death is difficult. Dealing with the death of a young person, and damn, from where I stand, 38 is still a kid, is both difficult and tragic. When we add to that Gershwin's dazzling talent and unlimited promise, we are forced as well to ask, what if? So, in order to lighten the mood a bit before jumping into the painful tragedy of Gershwin's death, let us momentarily plumb the ridiculous. David Bowie Barbie. On this day in 2019, the toy maker Mattel announced the release of a new collectible Barbie doll inspired by David Bowie. 1947 to 2016, and his signature Ziggy Stardust persona. Quote, Dubbed Barbie as Bowie, the doll is dressed as the late singer's glam rock alter ego, complete with a pair of red platform boots and topped with his fiery red mullet. Unquote. Now, I know this is going to come as a shock to many of you, but I do not consider myself particularly knowledgeable about the subculture that is the world of Barbie. As a result, I have found it necessary to turn to an expert. Please, everyone, meet Azusa Barbie, who in the two-minute video linked, gives us a short tour of her real Barbie dream house, or apartment, in West Hollywood, California. As you've probably guessed, Azusa Barbie is not her real name. She was born Azusa Sakimoto on November 15, 1981, in Tokyo, Japan. When not vlogging about Barbie, she makes her living as a nail artist in Los Angeles. Follow the attached link to Azusa Barbie's review of the David Bowie Barbie, a review we may consider to be definitive, the very last word on the subject. With that bit of Barbie-inspired foolishness behind us, we move on to serious business. George Gershwin, 1898 to 1937. George Gershwin had it all. Tall, athletic, good-looking, in his own lantern-jawed sort of way. He was blessed with preternatural talent. As someone who had grown up poor on the streets of New York City, he was devoid of snobbery or pretense and could get along with just about anyone. He suffered no childhood trauma. He adored and was adored by his family and friends and was filled with vitality and an infectious joie de vivre. We are told, But given his gifts and diffusive personality, he might have inspired envy and perhaps even dislike had he not been such a genuinely sweet, ingratiating and affectionate man. He had serious and lasting relationships with women, but never married. The bachelor's life suited him just fine, and he lived a life that we all might envy. An international jet-setter long before the invention of jet aircraft, he partied and performed, was feted and fawned over, and he ate, drank, smoked his cigars, played tennis, composed, and made love across the Americas and Europe at a time, the 1930s, when most people were doing their best simply to survive the Depression. California. In early 1936, the Hollywood movie studio RKO, which stands for Radio Keith Orpheum, came knocking on George's door at 101 Central Park West, a building between 70th and 71st streets on Manhattan's Upper West Side. The good people at RKO asked, how would George and his brother and songwriting partner Ira like to come to Hollywood for 16 weeks and write a movie musical for RKO's Numero Uno property, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers? For George, still smarting from the failure of Porgy and Bess in the previous fall of 1935, the offer could not have come at a better time. The financials were worked out, and on August 8, 1936, George, his brother Ira, and Ira's wife Lenore boarded a plane at Newark Airport, and headed west to Los Angeles. It turned out to be a spectacularly productive year. The Gershwin brothers wrote the music for not just one movie, but for three. Two for RKO, both starring Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, Shall We Dance and A Damsel in Distress, and one for Samuel Goldwyn, the Goldwyn Follies. New Yorkers, through and through, both George and Ira unexpectedly fell in love with Southern California at a time when Southern California was rather easy to fall in love with, in the 1930s, before overpopulation, sprawl, creeping freeways, and rotten air became the norms. In their lifetimes, neither Ira nor George ever left. Ira died in Beverly Hills on August 17, 1983, 47 years almost to the day after having arrived. George's stay in Southern California was, tragically, much shorter. He died 11 months after having arrived on July 11, 1937. At first, everything was glorious, and the endless party that was George Gershwin's life continued uninterrupted. The Gershwin brothers rented a palatial home with a swimming pool and tennis court at 1019 North Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills and immediately became part of the Hollywood A-List. Writes David Ewan in his biography of Gershwin, George Gershwin, His Journey to Greatness, Prentice Hall, 1970, quote, for George, life in Hollywood consisted of an interminable round of evening parties and dinners. During the day, when he was not working, he enjoyed taking long, brisk hikes, which his masseuse had recommended, accompanied by his wire-haired terrier, Tony, or playing a hard game of tennis with friends, or driving his newly acquired sleek, cord car, of which he was proud, or relaxing at home at the easel with brush and paint. He was surrounded by many old and close friends, not only Irving Berlin and Jerome Kern, but also Oscar Levant, Harold Arlen, Yip Harburg, Moss Hart, Lillian Hellman, Bert Kalmer, and Edward G. Robinson, among others. And new friends supplemented the old. Among those he liked as well as admired was the celebrated modernist composer Arnold Schoenberg, who lived near enough to come over and play tennis with him. According to Gershwin's great friend, the American concert pianist, composer, conductor, author, radio game show panelist, television talk show host, comedian and actor Oscar Levant, 1906-1972, I must say that up until the six months preceding George Gershwin's death, Life for him was just one big, wild, marvelous dream come true." Boding very ill. The portents of trouble first appeared in January 1937. Ordinarily among the most cheerful and confident of people, Gershwin began experiencing anxiety and even signs of depression, emotional states unfamiliar to him. He asked his friend, the composer and conductor, Alexander Steinert, quote, I am 38, famous, and rich, but profoundly unhappy. Why? Unquote. Gershwin's friends found him uncharacteristically moody and irritable. To a person, Gershwin's friends thought that he was suffering burnout from the pressures of working in Hollywood. According to Gershwin's friend, the playwright, screenwriter, biographer, and longtime writer for the New Yorker, S.N. Samuel Nathaniel Berman, 1893 to 1973, quote, Hollywood was so preempted by psychoanalysts that it was inconceivable that any ailment could, on occasion, be physical. Whatever was wrong with you must be a mental aberration due to some disappointment connected with the industry." But in fact, George Gershwin was suffering from a brain tumor. The first major physical manifestation of the tumor occurred on February 11, 1937, when Gershwin was performing his concerto in F with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. During the second movement, he momentarily blacked out and lost consciousness. He recovered quickly enough, but said afterwards that he had the peculiar sensation of having smelled burning rubber. Given the diagnostic tools available to them at the time, Gershwin's doctors could find nothing physically wrong with him. But as the spring of 1937 progressed, Gershwin's symptoms became more and more frightening olfactory hallucinations, like smelling burnt rubber, dizzy spells, and in April, another blackout, this one while sitting in a barber's chair. By June, Gershwin was suffering from paralyzing headaches. Further tests on June 9th revealed nothing. Still more tests on June 23rd, including x-rays, and ocular fundoscopic examination, a Wasserman test, and a Rönt of the skull were inconclusive. leading Gershwin's psychiatrist, Dr. Gregory Zilborg, and his sister-in-law, Lenore, and his close friend, Moss Hart, to continue to insist that his symptoms were psychogenic. Meanwhile, July rolled around, and poor George fell apart. He could hardly walk. He couldn't drink anything without spilling it on himself or hold a fork and he became increasingly lethargic due to the painkiller phenobarbital he was taking for his headaches, quote, which knocked him to the ground in pain, unquote. Finally, he experienced two epileptic seizures called automatisms, which are, quote, a clouding of consciousness that occurs during or immediately after a seizure, and during which the individual performs simple or complex movements and actions without being aware of what is happening," During the first such seizure, Gershwin tried to bodily throw his valet, masseuse, and driver, Paul Mueller, out of a moving car while on the way to a doctor's appointment. During the second seizure, he smeared an entire box of chocolates, a gift, from his sister-in-law, Lenore, all over his body. Still, still, Gershwin's psychiatrist, Dr. Gregory Zilborg, and others continued to claim that his symptoms and actions were psychological, that is, until they were suddenly and forever proven wrong when Gershwin fell into a coma from which he never regained consciousness on July 9, 1937. Rushed, to Cedars of Lebanon Hospital, today Cedars Sinai Medical Center, a spinal tap administered on July 10th revealed evidence of a brain tumor. Gershwin went under the knife in the early morning hours of July 11th. The operation lasted five hours. It took a full 90 minutes just to locate the tumor, which was in the right temporal lobe. It was a glioblastoma multiform, from which there could be no recovery. The neurosurgeons, Dr. Howard Nafziger, assisted by Dr. Carl Rand, removed what they could. But Gershwin died at 10.35 a.m. Pacific Time, three hours after the surgery concluded. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. The recriminations regarding Gershwin's medical care began immediately after his death and continue to this day. Yes, indeed. It took a coma to convince Gershwin's docs that he was physically ill. We are told by armchair physicians today that if Gershwin had had a spinal tap on June 9th or even June 28th, the tumor would have been discovered earlier and we would observe that if Gershwin did in fact have glioblastoma he was already a dead man no matter when the tumor was detected. In 2001 the pathologist Dr. Gregory Sloop claimed that Gershwin's brain tumor was an astrocytoma and not a glioblastoma and that quote Gershwin would have had a reasonably good prognosis had the doctors been able to operate before he succumbed to a coma, You know, one wonders what sort of good prognosis Dr. Sloop refers to. Everyone involved in the surgery, which did no small damage to Gershwin's brain, agreed that had he lived, he would have experienced some degree of paralysis. Besides, to this day, Eighty-five years later, astrocytoma is not curable, merely treatable, using tools that didn't exist in 1937, like chemotherapy and modern radiation therapy. Yes, if sloop is correct, Gershwin might have survived for a period of time, but in a profoundly diminished state. No one, particularly George Gershwin himself, would have wanted that. We give the last word here, almost certainly the correct word, to the renowned neurosurgeon Dr. Walter Dandy, 1886 to 1946, of Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dandy, who would have done the surgery himself if its necessity had not been so pressing, evaluated the care Gershwin received. He wrote, quote, I do not see what more could have been done for Mr. Gershwin. It was just one of those fulminating, meaning having developed suddenly and severely, tumors. I think the outcome is much the best for himself. For a man as brilliant as he, with a recurring tumor, would have been terrible. It would have been a slow death, Desolation. The artistic community was devastated by Gershwin's death. The comments and eulogies poured in from near and far. To list them would fill an entire post. We'll read just one, for now, from the writer John O'Hara, 1905 to 1970, who wrote, quote, George died on July 11, 1937, but I don't have to believe it if I don't want to. No one was more devastated than Gershwin's own family, in particular his older brother Ira, who was George's soulmate, his writing partner, and his constant companion. On August 17, 1937, five weeks after George's death, Ira wrote his mother, For the last two weeks, the loss has hit me harder than ever. An hour doesn't go by, that some memory doesn't suddenly hit me. I know it's the same with you, Mom, and we've just got to be brave about it. Maybe time will smooth off the edges of our pain. Let's hope so, unquote. It appears that subconsciously, at least, Ira never did manage to smooth the edge off his pain. According to the singer and pianist, Michael Feinstein, born 1956, who worked for Ira Gershwin from 1977, 40 years after George's death, to 1983. Ira talked to George in his sleep, during which he carried on conversations. According to Feinstein, those conversations were, quote, filled with anger, centering around Ira's desire not to stay on Earth and George's insistence that he stay, unquote. Israel, Ira Gershwin, died in Beverly Hills on August 17, 1983, at the age of 86, having outlived his baby brother by 46 years. They are interred together in George's mausoleum at Westchester Hills Cemetery, Hastings-on-Hudson, New York, roughly 20 miles north of New York City. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.